Good morning. Good to see you. Good to be together uh, with everybody. Uh, if we have not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dave, one of the pastors here, and um, excited to get into uh, God's Word uh, this morning. Um, I encourage you to find a copy of Scripture. Hopefully, you have one with you. If you don't, that's all right. We got one that you can use. Uh, there's uh, Bibles that you can be found underneath one of the seats in front of you. If you don't own a copy of Scripture, you are welcome to take that home with you. That's our gift to you. Um, I always like to say you're not stealing because we are giving it to you, okay? So uh, just go ahead and walk out the door with it and, uh, and then bring it back next time, and, and you can use that. Um, we're in the uh, English Standard Version. We're in the Book of Acts. If you find the Book of Acts, you can start making your way all the way toward the end because we are uh, toward the tail end of a, a series that we've been in for some time. Uh, while you're finding that, I just kind of wanted to add um, a couple, uh, couple things. Um, uh, Pastor Jeff mentioned the uh, block party earlier. I just want to also add my word of thanks to the many of you who served and made that possible, uh, both through the planning and preparation and then serving yesterday. It really was just a fun, fun time uh, together. Um, there's been much that um, over the last couple years, and we, we I'm, I, you know, Think of try and think of new ways to say this, but there's just not like new ways of saying it. We're like just not a lot has felt normal, or everything kind of seems different. And just like yesterday felt good. It was great to just be together as a church and to um, laugh and to have some more time to just catch up. And I just was having a, a fun time, just um, you know, sort of making my rounds and, and eating a lot of popcorn and snow cones, and um, and just kind of visiting with everybody, and um, and then just meeting new faces and um, heard from many in the neighborhood that man, this is this is good. We, we need this. This, is, um, this has been a long time since we've done this. And, and so um, I know those that were there were just super appreciative of that. And our hope is to, to be a good neighbor. We want to love our uh, city well. We certainly want to uh, love this little pocket of our, our, uh, our, the pocket of our city right here um, well. And so that was what we were seeking to do yesterday. I think we, I think we did that. So thank you for the many of you that um, helped um, uh, pull that off and, um, and make that happen. Um, one kind of preview I wanted to give, um, we're still uh, kind of trying to figure out, but just want to put it on your radar. Um, uh, this is, if you, if you know me, like I'm just a pretty transparent guy, like that's kind of like my leadership style and everything. But um, we, we really debated, and, and, and as we were approaching summer, we know that there's trips, and, and we know that the weather changes, and schedules kind of change, and, and so we see some of you a little less frequently. I would really encourage you, this is my pastoral note, I would say on that, is to be here regularly. Like, we don't stop church in the summer, so be here each week, every week. Come and, and be a part of what's going on here, um, but uh, our services do tend to lighten up a little bit, and so we were like, debating right on the cusp of can we fit together in one service? And we um, were on the verge of kind of doing that. And we thought, man, I think we're just like kind of close. I think we still need uh, two. But man, that light, that 830 service, some of you have kind of made the jump or especially on a step two day, sometimes we see families that come, you know, uh, that you're usually come to 830, come to 11. But um, that, that 830 is a little bit light right now. So what we might, what we might do, and we'll announce it for sure next week, but just kind of wanted to put it on your radar, is um, uh, for the month of July, we had a lot of fun at that one service that we did a couple weeks ago in Memorial Day, um, that Memorial Day weekend. Um, for July, we're thinking maybe, maybe we just do five weeks of one service. We're already planning one service for July 3rd, so you can for sure kind of have that down. July 3rd, one service, 10 a.m. I think that's actually going to be a family service. We're going to invite kids, in, all the kids into the service and kind of you know, all be together and really um, enjoy that. We'll still have nursery, um, and all of the uh, parents of little infants said amen. And um, we'll have nursery, uh, but uh, I, we're thinking maybe just kind of carrying that out through the month of July and having one service at 10 a.m., so you guys would just have to 
come a little bit earlier. And then um, that later service, um, some of them love the 8.30. So it's a bigger deal for them. Uh, but uh, yeah, we're kind of looking at that for um, just for the month of July. And um, it also gives a little bit of a breather to a lot of our faithful volunteers, people, people who serve on, on, uh, on Sunday mornings. And um, so that's kind of on the, on the table. If you have strong feelings about that, either pro or against, I'd love to hear them, okay? So share them with me, share them with one of the, one of the staff or leaders or somebody, and, um, and we'll just kind of be looking at it and see. Because if we can fit in one service, man, it's kind of fun to do that for a little bit. We certainly can't do that all the time. Um, and there's lots of great reasons why we have two services. It allows our kids workers, especially uh, who serve in the kids' classrooms, to be able to still attend church. That's one of the many benefits to that. But then, um, yeah, we just need more space. We can't all fit together. So that's what we're kind of looking at uh, for that. All right, well, all that being said, let's jump into God's word together. Can't wait to get to our passage that we are in uh, this morning. Um, Hopefully you found it. We are in Acts chapter 25 and 26 uh, this morning. Um, I'll give you the title and then kind of want to set where we're going this morning. I'm calling this morning, whether great or small, um, some words that Paul is going to use in a defense uh, before the king, uh, King Agrippa, um, this morning. Uh, but uh, this, this chapter sort of follows uh, a theme that we've seen many, many times before. And one of the things that I think is going on here that Luke is doing at the end of this, one, is he's just giving the account, right? Um, he's not kind of uh, rearranging this. This is a chronological account of, of all the things that are happening at the end of Paul's ministry. And so what we're finding here is a similar situation. You've noticed we've kind of taken two, two chapter uh, chunks of, the, of the, the book together for a while. Well, there's a lot of, there's a similar rhythm uh, in Luke's writing. He'll often take a chapter and sort of set up uh, the, um, the, the trial, the conflict, whatever's kind of going on. And then he takes a chapter and, and sort of highlights or, or uh, puts a spotlight on the defense that Paul is making. So this morning, it's the same thing. Chapter 25 sort of sets up the situation. And then 26 is Paul's speech, his kind of defense before um, the tribunal and before King Agrippa. And in this, there's a lot of repeated themes. That's one of the reasons that we're kind of, you know, Pressing the fast forward button a little bit as we're kind of, we're not trying to like just get acts over with, but there's a lot of overlap in some of these themes. Just the same, I just want to say as a preface for, for what we're looking at this morning, I think Luke is intentionally kind of repeating some of these themes. Um, some of you understand this. You, you know that there's certain places, certain people, certain situations that you have to repeat yourself before it's actually sort of resonates or is heard. Am I right? Um, there might be that one coworker at work that you're like, man, I have to tell them like 10 times before they understand and really know what I'm uh, talking about. Parents, you for sure get that, right? Um, I tell you, sometimes I feel like I'm telling my kids the 101st time like that day and it's like, they're like, really? What's, and I'm like, I told you 100 times already, like today. And you're just now hearing this? Like, you know, you just gotta kind of repeat. Um, uh, as a pastor, sometimes I feel like there's similar conversations or similar uh, sort of things that we're like, I'm constantly circling back to and being like, hey, you know that this is this, this way or kind of reminding uh, in uh, some of that. 
I think um, for those of you that are teachers or <laughs> have kids that are just finishing up the school year, it is the end of the school year, right? School year's wrapping up. Um, uh, I saw a witness to this. Teachers for sure uh, experienced this. I, we were at a fifth grade uh, graduation for our second. So she's finishing elementary, now into middle school, which is code for, you should hear, like we now have two middle schoolers in the uh, Jacobson household. So you can pray even more for us. Um, but uh, my years as a, as a, as a youth pastor, working with students is like really coming in handy here. I, I actually love this, this age, so I'm like thrilled out of my mind. My wife is a little bit more like, hmm, what do we do with these guys? But I love it. And so we were at a fifth grade graduation and I watched this happen. It was just so, so funny because um, uh, Ava's teacher, uh, they had kind of dismissed all everybody. Everyone was kind of going back. We just finished the graduation. They're all kind of going to their, their, uh, their families. And she literally had to turn the mic back on and say, hey, uh, um, students, um, if you left shoes or backpacks or all of your stuff up on the stage, you're going to want that before summer, right? And I'm thinking, how many times during the year has she had to remind these fifth graders to like pick up their stuff? And here she was one more time right before summer. The last thing she's saying to them before she sees them is like, hey, don't forget your stuff, right? And so they're all like going back up and, and getting it. So sometimes it takes like repetition before it really settles in uh, with us. And I think that is what the author Luke is doing in giving us this defense this morning. Because what we're gonna see this morning is a, is a defense that Paul, this is actually the fifth defense that, that is recorded for us that Paul has had to make. And I would argue that the one that we're looking at today in chapter 26 is the most prominent and most important of all the defenses that he has made. One of the reasons is it's in front of one of the most important people that he's ever been in front of before. But the other reason that I think it's the most important is just the time and the, um, the attention that Luke gives to it in the way that he writes it. And what we're gonna see, this is really the fruition of what we began so many months ago when we began this, this journey through Acts in Acts chapter one, verse eight. It's not on your screens, but many of you know it, is, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the trajectory that was set by Jesus to his followers, said, you will be my witnesses. And you're going to go out to all these places and you're going to do that. And what we're seeing here at the end of Paul's ministry is that has been accomplished, not just by Paul, but by many, many faithful men and women have been the witness of Jesus in all these surrounding areas, regions, even to the ends of the known earth and where people were. That is what has happened. And so now Paul, as he's done all of that, with both great and small, beginning in Damascus, then moving to Jerusalem, to Judea, to the Gentiles, he has shared the hope of Jesus Christ. And here is a major theme that I think we're gonna see this morning. If you wanna write down one kind of big idea that I think this passage is teaching us, it's this. It says, everybody, everybody, whether great or small, is called to respond to Christ as Lord. I believe there is one Lord, there is one, one savior and his name is Jesus. And it doesn't matter whether you are important or unimportant, whether you are black or white, or it doesn't matter the language that you speak, the uh, 
home that you came from, whether you had means or you had nothing, it doesn't matter whether you are educated, uneducated, whether you are a super nice person or you're a little prickly, you all, we all need Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And we are all called to respond to him as such. We are called to respond. And what Paul is doing this morning in his defense is he is calling for a response to all the people Everyone who's listening to him, he is saying, whether great or small, you need to respond to Jesus. Not just to hear, not just even to believe, but to respond to him as Lord and to acknowledge him as such in your life. And he's gonna have the opportunity to do that. And so before we go any further, let me just ask that God would teach us what he would have for us this morning in his word. Would you uh, pray with me? Our God, we thank you for the truth that we find here this morning. And God, we thank you for the many, um, the many things that you've taught us through this study in the book of Acts. And as we arrive here at the end, and, and God repeated yet again, we're gonna see some of the same things that you've taught us before. I pray that we would hear them fresh this morning. God, that we would understand our need to acknowledge you as Lord and to continue, God, to live and acknowledge you as Lord in every way, every area of our life. God, we ask for your teaching of us now. Or would you show us what it is that you have for us this morning? God, as we're just saying, we need you. We need you to teach us now. And so we ask that you would do that. Use this time. Use your word. We pray in the name of your son, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, let me do this. Let me summarize chapter 25, and then we're going to kind of walk through the defense that Paul gives in chapter 26. So where we picked up, uh, left off last week is Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea, and he has been on trial with this uh, governor named Felix. And if you look at verse 27 of chapter 24, kind of scan your eyes up a little bit, it says, then two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. All right? So here's what's happening here. There's a new governor coming into, into uh, authority, Festus, taking over for Felix. And some of you can totally relate to what's happening. If you've ever taken up over a new responsibility, there's someone who's like in a position at work, right? And they're taking over a new responsibility. And, and all of a sudden, there's this whole list of problems. You're like, wait, why didn't they deal with that when they were doing it? Anyone ever experienced that? Yeah, I know you have, right? Just go ahead and give me a nod. Tell me that I'm not the only one, right? You get into your new role, you start your new job, and all of a sudden there's this problem that was left for you, this little gift from the previous employer, employee, right? That's exactly what happens. Look at verse one. Now three days after Festus has arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem. It's his first week on the job. He went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem. And here's the real reason why they wanted him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. And so Festus, new governor, now in authority, first week on the job, he goes to Jerusalem and he gets ambushed by all these religious leaders. And they're like, hey, we gotta talk about Paul. Here's our deal with Paul. Here's what's going on with Paul. We need, we need you to bring him here to Jerusalem so we can put him on trial here. And really, they're just done with Paul. They wanted to attack and kill him. They wanted nothing more to do with Paul. And so they were done. And now, what should have been Felix's thing, for two years, he left Paul in prison. He just kind of like, well, if I do anything with him, it's gonna rile all those Jews up. And so I'm just gonna leave him in prison, leave it for the next guy. 
All right, so now Felix is in control. He's, or Festus, rather, is in control. And, um, and he, Festus replies, he says, well, Paul's at, at Caesarea, and he's going to there. He's like, so why don't you just come with me? Like, let the men of authority, those of you that have this, this kind of thing against Paul, why don't you come up? We're gonna put him on trial. It's not really the Roman way to not have an accuser face-to-face before the accused. This is how trials work. And so if you have something against him, you come to Caesarea, we're going to put him on trial there. And they do that. The men come, they sort of make up, kind of offer these sort of false attacks. And after hearing it, Festus kind of sits back and he's like, I don't understand any of this. This seems like kind of a family affair, right? This is like an internal conflict. I can sense and have definitely understood that with my kids. It's already summer and I'm already like some of the fights. It's like they come to me and they're like, hey, this happened and this happened. And I'm like, yeah, I don't really understand all that. Why don't you guys just go work that out? Okay, I don't have, I don't really have any like, so that's kind of what Fest is. He's like sitting back. He's like, you guys, I, this seems like a religious kind of deal or issue. Why is this before me? Can't you guys uh, figure this out? Sort of unsure what to do. Uh, But Paul, in the meantime, says, listen, I'm not wrong. I haven't done anything. I don't deserve to die. I do not seek to escape death, but there's none of these charges are true. So he says, I appeal to Caesar at the end of verse 11. So Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answers, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So Paul, as a Roman citizen, had this option that he could be sent to Rome before the emperor, that there would be a trial there in Rome, um, essentially, not necessarily that it would be the emperor himself, although I think he's present for some of those, but like that's kind of the option that, that citizens had is to kind of, you know, let me go to the Supreme Court and, and, and can, you know, get this tried there. And so now he's sort of in a, in a difficult place because Festus is like, I don't understand the issue. How am I supposed to send this guy to Rome if I don't even understand what the, what the problem is? Enter King Agrippa. Look at verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now, we have to do a little mini history lesson to understand um, who Agrippa is because it's helpful for us this morning. The, 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 the defense Paul makes is before King Agrippa, so we should understand who he is. King Agrippa is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. If you know Herod the Great, he built the temple. He was a kind of in... in um, uh, in, in rule for a while, like kind of, you know, big deal. And so this is a great-grandson, so several generations had, um, uh, had, um, had transpired. And, uh, and here we have um, uh, King Agrippa. He is brought up in Rome. He's actually Agrippa II, okay? This is, his dad was Agrippa I, so this is um, Agrippa the, the, II. He was brought up in Rome. He was a favorite of the emperor. But his dad, Agrippa I, died when he was only 17 years old. And so that's too young under the Roman rule to be given the authority that his dad had. So he didn't kind of inherit all the same provinces and, and, and authority over them. Um, they got transferred to, some of them got transferred to his uncle and a provisional governor was set over Judea. When his uncle died, Agrippa, now a little bit older, was given this like kind of wimpy little kingdom. Um, it was named uh, Chalcis and it was just to the north of Judea. And it was like kind of nothing to speak of. It was kind of like this, you know, almost like more of a joke. And so I don't really get how this all worked, but Agrippa sort of traded up, like he gave up that kingdom for a few other regions and everything. So the cliff notes for us is Agrippa was the ruler to the north of Judea. So new governor comes in. Festus is now in authority over Judea. 
Agrippa comes down to meet with Festus, kind of pay his respects as the neighboring kind of nearby ruler. Kind of a big deal though. Again, favorite of Rome. But one of the other things that's helpful to know about Agrippa is he was the resident expert when it came to Jewish culture. His dad, again, had been over Judea. He had grown up kind of in that household. So for generations, they had been with the Jewish people. So he knew the customs. He knew the teachings. He knew the writings of the prophets. He was well acquainted. So if there was ever a Jewish religious issue that sort of came up, it's like, we got to talk to Agrippa about it. He gets this stuff. And so Festus, when King Agrippa is there, he's like, oh, I need to pick his brain on this guy, Paul, because he is probably the guy that's going to have the answers. He's going to help me out with this. Notice Agrippa's not alone. Bernice, who's that? Well, that's his sister. And we're not going to get into all the details about her, but let's just say that there's um, kind of a, a lot of scandal around Bernice. Um, there's rumors about the two of them. Um, there was a relationship with an uncle. There's like a future soon-to-be emperor that there's a relationship with. Like there's all this kind of scandal around. Basically, if you're checking out at the supermarket, you're gonna see King Agrippa and Bernice on the front page regularly on those tabloids, all right? That's kind of what, like that's the situation. Luke doesn't get into any of it. He just says Agrippa and Bernice, but everybody reading is like, oh, them, okay? So kind of big deal, but sort of messy kind of personal lives and, and all of that, which if you're in the position like that, your personal life is the political life and, and, and that. So Agrippa comes and notice verse 14, they stayed there many days and Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there is a man left in prisoner by Felix. It's like Felix left me a little going away present. I got to deal with this guy, Paul. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out his case, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of Romans to give away anyone before the accused had met their accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make a defense uh, con uh, concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came here, I made no delay. On the next day, I took my seat on the tribunal, ordered the man to be brought. But when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in case of his evils, as I supposed. He's like, I thought it was really bad. They laid out their case and I'm like not hearing anything that this guy has done wrong other than there's like some religious um, kind of uh, misalignment, you know, like different beliefs. They're kind of arguing over these things. They had certain points of dispute, verse 19, with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but Paul is saying is alive. So it's like they're saying he's dead. Paul's saying he's alive. There's other kind of religious disputes. But here's the thing, I don't know what to do. Being at a loss on how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem to be tried with there regarding them, but Paul said he had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor. He's like, I don't wanna to go to Jerusalem, I wanna to go to Rome. And I ordered him to be held so I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man for himself. Tomorrow you will hear him. And so Festus is hoping that Agrippa can help him get an understanding on the situation because he's like, if I'm gonna send him to Rome, I gotta explain what this is. And at this point, I'm kind of sending him like, hey, I don't really know what the conflict is. Good luck. You know, he's like, I can't just send him to Rome with that. Caesar's gonna want more for that. So what happens the next day, Agrippa, Bernice come in, tons of like pomp and circumstance and the whole thing, all the fanfare, everybody's there. Notice they entered the, with the military tribunes, with the prominent men of the city, so there's like the who's who of the city and of the government officials, all of them are there and present. And now King Agrippa is presented as uh, the arbitrator to hear Paul's defense of himself. He's going to examine him. 
They want to indicate, kind of hear the charges before they send him away. And so that is where we get to chapter 26 of verse 1, and we're going to hear Paul's defense. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Look what he says. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I get to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. He's like, you understand this stuff. I'm so glad I'm in front of you. Maybe you can help sort some of this out. Just hear me out. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Reminder, Pharisees were like super religious, super respected. They weren't disrespected. They were respected. They kept the law like down to the finest, most minute detail. So he's like, I was a Pharisee and a Pharisee of Pharisees. Verse six, and now I stand here on trial because my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers and to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. As they earnestly worship night and day and for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul's like, I don't understand what's going on, king. You know our customs. You know the prophets. You know for centuries, for generations, we have waited as a people for a Messiah to come. It's like from from Moses all the way to the prophets, we've been looking for the hope that God has promised. And what I'm standing here testifying and preaching and where I've gone between all these regions and I'm saying that hope has come. Like we've been looking for it and it's come. And why is it, Uh, crazy that we would think that God raises from the dead. He's done so many miracles, right? We have so many accounts, all the plagues and all the things, the parting of the sea, all these things that God has done. How would he not be able to raise someone from the dead? So he's like, I'm not speaking of anything that should come as a surprise and out of line or character with this God that we've professed for generations and generations. He's like, I get the controversy because look at verse nine. He kind of shares his own story. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. He's like, I was part of killing them. I was part of imprisoning them and killing them. It was all under the authority of the chief priests, but I was there. I was against these followers of Jesus. Verse 11, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blasphemy and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And that's exactly what he was doing. He was chasing them down, hunting them out, like hunting them down, finding them out and pursuing them to all the corners of Judea, trying to figure out where these guys are so that he could imprison and even have them on trial or killed for their beliefs. But he's like, everything changed. Verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. And it uh, shone around me and those who journeyed with me. When we all had fallen to the ground, we heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He speaks of this encounter with Jesus himself on the road, on the way to Damascus to persecute his followers. Jesus himself shows himself to him in this vision, speaks to him. But verse 16, we'll put it on the screen. Make sure you don't miss this. He says this, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you to as a servant and witness to these things which, I have se- which you have seen me and to those whom, in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from, their dark, from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul here is using his story to make sure that all who are in attendance, all who are within earshot of him, understand some key truths about God and the work that he's done. Not only the life of Paul, but the work that he's doing in the church, in the primary message of what Paul is preaching. And here's the first thing that he wants them to know. There's several things we're gonna see here. Here's the first one. You can jot this down if you're taking notes. Whether great or small, we have a problem. That problem is sin. Paul boldly is calling out the problem that all of us have, all of them had, and that is sin. Notice, he says he's sending you, sending Paul to both the Jews and to the Gentiles to open their eyes. Open their eyes to what? So that they would turn from darkness to light, from Satan to God, and that they would receive forgiveness of their sins. He's like, they need forgiveness. They all have sin and they need that sin forgiven. And the reality is this, whether great or small, we all have the same problem. We all are in our own sin. Let's get a definition down for uh, sin. Um, There's many ways we can define it. One of the ones that we've used before is sin is any failure uh, to conform to the Uh, holy nature of God in act, attitude, or nature. So in our actions, the things that we choose, the things that we do, the things that we say, the things that we, um, places we go, the, the activities that we engage in, we sin against that if it fails to conform to the perfect holy nature of God. Uh, We also uh, choose to sin sometimes in the attitude with which we do it. So sometimes it's not even the things that we do. You might be doing some really, um, quote unquote, great stuff, but you might have a selfish or prideful or arrogant attitude toward it. There might be sin even in the attitude with which we do things. And if that's not enough, our own nature condemns us before God because we are born into sin. Our first parents sinned and that sin nature has been passed down from generation to generation. It doesn't take long before you start seeing that sin nature come out, right? We don't teach our children to sin. They figure it out all on their own. They have that hardwired into them. And I think we all can attest to that. If you know of someone who isn't or has never sinned, I would love to meet that person because I just, there's that. And I think this is helpful for us to understand. You know, sometimes I think we try and um, get too creative in figuring out, well, why are things like so broken all around us? And why are these relationships difficult? Or why is this situation so hard? I'll tell you why. It's because of sin. We all have a problem. It's sin. 
And so the relationships that we have that are difficult, there's probably sin existing somewhere in there. That's, the, that's, the, that's the, either someone's kind of not thinking of the other or someone's um, uh, kind of privately thinking of themselves or, or there's sinful motives behind what they're trying to do or all of that. There is sin at the heart of our broken relationships. Uh, some of the conflict that we see around us, some of the, um, certainly the evil acts that we see uh, committed. I mean, it's, it's sinful hearts choosing sinful things. And we like to think, or, or what's been commonly sort of accepted in our day is that we're all generally good. Well, for being generally good, we're doing a pretty bad job of living in generally good ways toward each other. Am I right? Like, there's so much that, that we see broken around us, and that's because we have a sin problem. So whether great or small, that is what Paul is talking to, who Paul is talking to. He's trying to say that all, all of us need to move from darkness the place that we are all naturally in, to light. And we need to move from under the power of Satan to under the power of God. And we need to receive the forgiveness of our sins and be washed clean from that. That is the message that he is proclaiming to all. And he's saying, this was my deal too. He's like, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I kept the law. I was like the best of the best and I still had a sin problem. And so can I just tell you with love that the problem that you most need to deal with in your life is the sin that is naturally there. And by your own choosing, you time and time again, we time and time again, go back to and act in. We need help in our sinful state. And it doesn't matter how good you think you are Right? We often try and compare ourselves and we think, well, I'm better than him or, or I'm not as bad as her or something like that. I just wanna tell you, before God, all of us fall short of his glory. If the mark is up here, even the very best among us are way, way short on that. We love to compare ourselves, right? That's kind of a natural bent that we have is, well, we kind of look around, size ourselves up and if we can kind of like get to the top of the class, then we're you know, at least the 10%. Like, we're, you know, we gotta be making the cut, right? We're, we're above the curve on this uh, here. So, I mean, that's, that's my nature. Yesterday, um, uh, Pastor Jeff, uh, some of you that were at the black party know that uh, he lost his ring. I was kind of like, you know, brushing off his hands and it fell off into the long grass, thought he knew right where it was and immediately like, you know, a bunch of people kind of start looking for it. Nobody could find it. And so I heard about it later and I'm like, where'd you guys look? I'm like, the competitive nature in there. I'm like, I wanna be, I, I, yeah, I, I'll find it. For sure, I'll find it. So I get down, I start looking. I'm like, I'm just gonna find this thing, right? And like, after looking for a while, I'm like, I am finding this thing. This is, this is like, this is a lost cause. But at the end of the day, we had all these kids down there and I came up and I'm like, hey guys, 20 bucks to the person who can find it. And Pastor Jeff will double that. He'll also give you 20 bucks, all right? So then they really start, you know, the, the, like, the uh, speed with which they're kind of looking. Because we're all like, everyone's kind of going for it. We went to leave. Everyone was kind of gone. I was gathering my daughters and um, our, our middle child, Ruth, was, um, I couldn't find her. I asked my, my um, daughters, I said, hey, where's, where's your sister? Where's Ruth? And like, oh, she's out in the yard. I look out, everybody's gone. She's just out in the yard, like still like looking I'm like, hey, Ruthie, we gotta go. She's like, oh, I wanted $40, dad. <laughs> like, she's like looking for it, right? Like we want, we want to think of ourselves as better than others or able to do what others can't. And I just wanna tell you, none of us, none of us, there's no one here. There's no one here who can escape this problem. We all have it. We're not gonna kind of one-up anyone else on this. We all, all have this, whether great or small, we have a problem and it's called sin. It's a failing to conform to the perfect nature, the holiness of God. 
He's the standard of perfection and we all fall short on that. As a result, here's why that's so bad. It says, for the wages of sin is death. We've been separated and there's a death that is at work in our life and a future death that awaits us, a future separation from God. That sin separates us from our maker. That is why this is so serious. That is why it's such a big deal. That's why Paul was going everywhere he could. That's why he's taking this opportunity now and he's saying, listen, this is the message I am preaching is to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and receive the forgiveness of sin. We all need it. He continues on, verse 19, follow along. It says this, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus then in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Here's the second truth. Paul's making sure everyone hears and knows, whether great or small, we need to turn to God. And we call this action of turning to God, repentance. Repentance carries with it the idea of a stopping, a turning, and a new direction. I often use the visual picture of, right, I'm going this way, and then there's a time when you stop, and you turn around, and you're now going this way. Paul's life is a brilliant example of that. What was Paul's life? What did he just say? He was on the road to murdering Christians. He was trying to find followers of Jesus in Damascus. He's literally on his way, paper in hand, with the authority to do so. God stops him, Jesus appears to him, stops him on his way. And what does he do? He actually keeps going to Damascus, but his heart changes directions. Instead of going there to persecute them, he ends up going there to join them and to begin to tell others about him. There's a complete repentance and a turning to God. And really it's a returning to God. You know that our natural state, the way that we were created to be is in a right relationship with God. We say this all the time around here, but if it feels like things are broken, it's because they are. You were made to be in a right relationship with your maker. He's your heavenly father. He created you. He knows you like nobody else. He, he made you and he desires that relationship with you and that relationship has been broken. And so what we need, all of us, whether great or small, we need to turn to God by an act of repentance. Repentance is acknowledging what I did was wrong I'm gonna stop doing that and I'm gonna start doing this. I'm gonna go the other way. All of us need that. Do you remember when that happened? Do you remember when that moment happened for you? Has that happened? Have you had a moment of repentance in your life? Some of you know exactly when it was because for you it happened in a moment. You remember the time, you remember the place that you were, you remember the people you were with or the situation, the circumstances, you remember the prayer that you prayed. When you acknowledge, you said, God, what I'm doing is wrong. The path I'm on is wrong. I'm stopping and I want to follow your ways, God. I'm receiving your gift of life and I'm going to follow you now. Some of you know exactly where you were when that happened. Others of you are a little bit bothered by this over, I've, I've realized some of you like, oh, I don't know exactly when that moment was. It, it, it kind of happened over a period of time for me. I think sometimes we focus so much on the moment, but I don't think that's so much critical. It's like, well, you know when it started and you know when it ended and it just happened somewhere in between that. Some of you, that was a journey of a few weeks. Others of you, that maybe was a journey over a few years. When 
God began to stir your heart and there was like a shift and a change that happened and somehow at the end of it, you're like, no, I have now turned and I'm heading the other way. I'm now going the other direction. See, for me, that, that, that story, um, I, I, I have what I like to call a very boring testimony. I was um, about four years old. I, I was raised up and hearing the truths of scripture from a very young age. And, and I was four when I, I remember praying with my parents to receive God's gift of life for my life. I remember understanding that, that I had messed up and that God still loved me and he desired to have a relationship with me and that he had sent Jesus to make that possible. And so I remember praying with my parents to, uh, as, a, as a prayer of faith in that, in God's gift. Now, did I understand all the tenets of the faith and everything that you know, God had done and, and what exactly that meant? And could I you know, explain to you all these theological concepts and, and truths? No way. I didn't understand any of that, but I, I knew that. But I also often point to in my testimony story of that I was 13 when I made the decision to be baptized. I can still take you to the place. My family was living in Monroe, Wisconsin at the time. And we were at a church plant, so we didn't have a baptismal. And so we went to a backyard of someone in the church and we went to a pool. And so I remember being 13 um, and I can take you to the house where it happened. And I publicly professed that I was a follower of Jesus, that I had made the decision to leave behind my way of sin and to acknowledge and respond to Jesus as my Lord. And I was receiving his free gift of, of forgiveness of my sin. And I was going to follow him. And so that was 13. So for me, when was the true moment when I was saved, right? When I passed from death to life, was it at four or, or it was probably sometime between then? I don't exactly know, but I know that I know that I know now that I believe in the resurrection and the power of Jesus to forgive sins. And that's the only place that my faith and trust is in. And that's the only place that I'm looking to for the salvation of my sins. I know that. You know what we say all the time? You know, some people, again, are bothered because they have really boring testimonies. I've said before, I pray all the time that my kids have super boring testimonies. I want their testimony to be like, man, I, I heard about Jesus from a very early age. I started to believe in him in a very early age and I followed him all the days of my life. Like, that's what I hope my kids' testimony is. Some of you, that's not your testimony. You have a little bit more, let's call it adventure in your testimony, right? There's a little bit more sort of meandering that happened before that. There's a little more that you feel like you were saved out of. But like, can we just make no mistake about this? Listen, whether great or small, we all need to turn to God. I was just as much in my sin. I was just as much a prisoner of enslaved to sin at four years old as any of you were in whatever other stuff you were in, okay? I was in no better shape at that spot. My life had looked a little different, but I was just as much in need of a savior. All of us need to turn to God. It's called repentance. For Paul, it happened on the road to Damascus. For me, it happened in the, the bedroom with my parents. And for you, you can probably point to a time and a place or at least a season when God brought you to that place. If he hasn't, I promise you, he's drawing you toward that right now. Today could be the day. Good day to be the day when you say, I'm gonna stop going this way. I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna turn around. I'm gonna go this way. I'm gonna start following the way of the Lord because I see that that's better than the way I'm on now. That's what he's saying here. He says that they should repent, verse 20, that they should repent and turn to God. And look at this, performing deeds in keeping with the repentance. I love the way that he says that. He's like, it wasn't just a one-time act, but you keep doing it. So in light of the repentance that you've just declared, like keep living that way. You're gonna to wanna to go back to it or at times you're gonna forget, but he's like, don't do that. Keep living in accordance with your repentance. So he's encouraging them in that to perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. Great or small, we all need this. 
Number three, let me, let me read it to you, let me show it to you in scripture and then I'll give you the point. It says this, for this reason, the Jews seized me from in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here to testify, both small and great, that nothing but what the prophets Moses said would come to pass. It's like, this is nothing new. This is what we've been looking for. Verse 23, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, that he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. Here's number three, that he's trying to make sure everyone hears, whether great or small, we are offered forgiveness. And that forgiveness comes through the person of Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross. And he's saying, listen, this is what our fathers have been waiting for. Moses and all the prophets said that there was a Messiah that was gonna come, that he was gonna rescue God's people and that the nations would be blessed. I'm telling you, that Savior, that Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. He is the Christ. And he performed what said would happen, that, it would, that, it, that he would suffer and die. He did. He was crucified. He was, laid on a, he was put on a cross and then laid in a tomb. But being the first to rise from the dead, he came to life. And then that he's proclaiming light. What's that light? It's forgiveness. Both to the Jews, to our people, and to the Gentiles is what Paul is saying, is that we are offered in the work of Jesus forgiveness. This is the hope. This is the light. This is the salvation that God has brought. And whether great or small, we are all offered that. And I just want to tell you today that God extends his forgiveness to you, not based on anything that you do, but through the work of Jesus alone. There is no one in this room, there is no one that you can think of in your relationships, in, the, in your life, in your circle of people that you know. There is no one that has done anything so wrong or so bad that God cannot forgive or will not forgive of it. Jesus's death has the power to pay for even the gravest of sins. So I don't care if you feel like you're not worthy of it. You're, first of all, you're not. That's a good place to be. You're not worthy of it, but it is sufficient. God's payment for the penalty of your sin is the blood of Jesus Christ, and he's offering it to you. But you have to understand this. It's a free gift, but it's a costly gift. It's free to you, but it's costly to him. And he's offering it. You have to receive it. Just knowing about it isn't enough. You have to actually receive it from God. Whether great or small, he's offering it to you today. And he's offering it to those that you know today. And that's what Paul is proclaiming. He's like, listen, this is what we have been waiting for. We've been waiting for the Messiah and he has come. And so I don't understand what the big deal is because I'm just kind of living out what, what we've been waiting for. It's happened. I missed it at first too, but I'm telling you so you don't miss it. That's what he's trying to say. Whether great or small, we're all offered forgiveness. Can we just praise God for that? Can we give thanks to God in our own hearts for that? What a gift God has given us in his son, Jesus. What a magnificent gift of forgiveness that he offers us in that. Would we never take that lightly? Would we never presume upon that? It was very, very costly to him. But we are all offered that free gift through the work that Jesus has done. He continues on. He's not done yet. Look at verse 24. When we were saying these things, in his defense, Festus interjects. He kind of cuts in. He says with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. The translation here is like, hey, you're crazy, man. 
Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. He's like, this is nonsense. What do you mean we're all sinners and Jesus came and died and through his raised life that now we can find life? Like, that's crazy. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Then he turns to the king, for the king knows about these things and to him I'm speaking boldly. For I'm persuaded um, that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. He's like, Jesus' ministry was public. His death was public. His resurrection was public. Agrippa, I know you know about this. Look at him, verse uh, 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. He's like, you've studied this enough. You know that there is credence in there, that there is truth in there, that there is facts in there. Do you believe this, king? Now, king feels a little bit on trial, sort of responds. Look at how he responds. Verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He's like, what do you think, Paul? You think you're gonna convince me in just a few minutes, right? Just a handful of sentences. You're gonna, you're gonna convince me that I need to follow this Jesus? And look at Paul's response. I love it. And Paul said to him, whether a short or long, he's like, I'll talk as long as you give me, right? Whether short or long, I can go all night. There's a guy that you can, you know, will testify to that, right? Whether short or long, I would love, I would to God that, that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I don't know if that's a joke, but I'm pretty sure that it is. I don't know how else to read it. Like kind of this like little like, like dig, you know, like you picture it, right? He's like, he's like, I don't care, you know, as long as you give me, if it's another 15 minutes or I get 15 more hours, he's like, I'll take all the time that I have, but I want to convince you. I want everyone who hears me to be just like me. Well, except for these chains, that part you can skip, but everything else I want you to be, you know, like, I think that's kind of the nuance of what he's saying here, but what's he doing? What's he doing? It's this. He's showing us what God can do with, with anyone who would allow it. I believe God wants us to know this this morning, is that whether great or small, we can be used by God. And we call this a witness. This is what Jesus sent his followers out to be. He says, you will be my witnesses. And that is what Paul is doing. He is his witness. And so he's taking every opportunity. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He's like, well, whether short or long, I'm gonna say to everybody here, I hope that you are listening to what I'm saying because I have a hope that I didn't have. And that hope is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. You're not gonna find it anywhere else. And so I'm gonna take these moments that I have and I'm gonna tell you and ask you to respond to Jesus as Lord because you need to respond to Jesus as Lord. It's not just to know that you, that you know, it's that you would respond to it. And he's being a witness for Christ. He's using everything that he has in that. And that is, in a nutshell, what the book of Acts is for us. It's not just the great Paul that we've now seen. I mean, man, what an example we have in him. We've said it time and time again. He was just a guy. He was just a dude, right? But he was faithful. God used faithful men and women. So many times Paul would show up in town. He didn't plant the church. He would find Christians. There were men and women that went before him just being faithful as they're taking business trips and they're visiting family and they're kind of going on vacation. They're telling people. They're, they're being witnesses for Christ and what Christ has done. And we see this example time and time again. Paul is using his story as a tool for a witness. And that story is framed. So many times we see it. I was, but God, and now, right? Paul's like, I was on the way to Damascus. I was chasing down Christians, 
But God stopped me in my tracks, showed me my need for him. I realized my sin and my need for forgiveness and I repented and turned toward God. And now, and now I have a ministry and I have purpose and I have hope and I have a life that I never had before. I didn't find in any of my, my pharisaical ways and I didn't find in any of my education or teaching or upbringing or anything like that. I found it only in Jesus. And so, and now this is the story that I have. And I would just say this, if you are a follower of Jesus, you too have the same tool that you can use as a witness. You might have someone you're talking to and they might not believe or you might not be able to convince them that everything in here is factual or, or correct or helpful or whatever. But you have a story that's undeniably true. At some point, there's been many times in my conversations with people that I'll say, listen, man, I don't know about any of that. But I know this, I was this way and God did this and now he's doing this. And I don't know how else to explain it, but to say that it's Jesus Christ. So you have that tool if you have been saved by Jesus. And you can use that to be a witness. That is what a witness is. A witness tells of the work that Jesus has done. And so why don't you just point to your own life and say, look, this is what it looks like in my life. And I want that for you. I desire that for you. So whether short or small, I don't know how much more time we got together, but I'm gonna tell you, that you would be just like me and you would have the same story, that you too could say, I was, but God, and now I'm this. This is what God is doing. Let's finish the story so we can kind of keep up with the narrative. Verse 30, the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment, right? He didn't do anything wrong. And Agrippa said to Festa, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Man, I think God uses that, right? That's that appeal to Caesar is what sends him to Rome and he's able to bring the gospel to Rome. But here at this moment, I mean, they're saying he's done nothing wrong. He's, he would be free to go, except he's made this appeal. So now we gotta honor it and we're gonna send him off to Rome. And that's what we're gonna see in the next two weeks as he goes off to Rome. We're gonna see the gospel travel. Um, well, it's already there, but it's gonna be strengthened with Paul arriving there. He is using Paul even in this appeal to Caesar to get him to the place he needs him to be. He's a witness for Christ. And we are called to do the same. Listen, the more and more that we rehearse and recite and understand this testimony, I said at the beginning, like I think Luke is trying to repeat these themes that we don't miss it. And so I think we need to hear this again and again. We need to be reminded of this truth again and again, that you have a story. God has worked in your life that you would be a witness for him. And you would speak with boldness in your own personality, in your own ways, in your own opportunities to the things that God has done in your life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. God, the way that you have worked to redeem and save. Lord, many here in this place. God, many here today have the same story. They can say with confidence, they can say with I'm sure tears in their eye. God, I was this way. But you did this, and now I can see that you're doing this. Lord, I pray for those here this morning that even in this short time, that they would recognize their need for you. Lord, if there would be someone here even today that, that needs to turn and to repent, because they would understand your love, that you freely offer forgiveness because of the work done by Christ on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, God, and in his life that we find life eternal. 
And so Lord, I pray that there would be a turning even today. Lord, the day would be the day of salvation. Lord, and that we would be faithful to carry that message, that witness, as we've seen so many times in the book of Acts. God, that's the same thing that you're still writing out in our life now. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful, to carry the testimony of what you've done with us at all times. Lord, would you speak boldly through us? Would you use our life as your witness? We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.